Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Um, here at the New Books Network, we know that the world is facing a tremendous challenge and that many of you are dealing uh, to the best of your abilities with the consequences of this pandemic. We hope that in the midst of all, these interviews can help you face the dread and isolation or at the very least that they can help you think in something else. This is why today I will be talking to Lina Brit about her fantastic book, Marijuana Boom, The Rise and Fall of Colombia's First Drug Paradise, published by the University of California Press in 2020. Welcome, Lina. Thank you for talking to me in this very difficult moment. Thank you so much for the invitation, Lisette, uh, and thank you uh, to all our listeners. Okay, Lina, so you are a professor of history at Northwestern University. But you have a very interdisciplinary background. Um, in the book, we learned that you also studied anthropology and you were also a journalist. So tell us a little bit about this trajectory of yours that seems so unique. Um, so I don't know. I think it's just kind of like um, uh, the way in which I relate to, you know, the world and, and life in general, because I remember that I always wanted to tell stories uh, since I was a child, even before I knew how to read and write. So obviously, in an unconscious way, I knew that I wasn't interested in telling my own intimate, personal, private stories, but to tell other people's stories and make sense of the world around me. So now that I think about it, uh, and that I've been thinking about it kind of in, in the last years while I was working on my book, I think uh, that the fact that I was born and raised at a very dramatic moment in the history of my hometown, Medellin, Colombia, uh, had a lot to do with it because I was there witnessing the emergence and consolidation of the cocaine cartels and the war that they led against the Colombian state and society. That was my childhood and adolescence. Um, so I guess that experience in, at some level convinced me of the importance of storytelling. So journalism was kind of like my uh, entry door to that world of writing about social realities and about others. And I completed a BA in journalism in the Universidad Pontificia Bolivariana in Medellín. And I worked as a journalist for several years for newspapers and magazines in Colombia and later on in Bolivia, where I moved to live there uh, at some point. And it was there uh, while I was living in La Paz, Bolivia, uh, that I decided to resume with my studies. And I enrolled in this amazing master program. Uh, in anthropology at a small university that only had graduate programs. And again, I found myself witnessing another historical moment uh, in La Paz, Bolivia. And I'm talking about this series of revolts and uprisings that took place in Bolivia in the early 2000s that kind of like threatened the existence of the neoliberal system and neoliberal governments that ruled Bolivia for decades. Um, so I saw and I reported on this mass mobilization and protest uh, that overthrew two consecutive presidents. So first, uh, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada in 2003, and then Carlos Mesa in 2005. You know, we know that those revolts and uprisings were the ones that brought Evo Morales to the presidency. But for me, what it was really interesting beyond this specific outcome, it was the fact that these revolts and uprisings kind of like were anchored and awakened and reactivated these old political traditions of popular mobilization and a struggle with deep historical roots. And that's how kind of like I realized of the importance of history 
and decided to change gears again and enrolled uh, and apply to PhD programs in history in the United States. And I was accepted at NYU, at New York University. And in the process of doing the PhD program and conducting the research for my dissertation, I realized that these three disciplines that I had been trained in uh, were extremely complementary. So kind of like that's what I've been doing, kind of like navigating all these waters um, on how to chronicle events, how to explore uh, motivations and causes and intentions and outcomes, uh, how to understand the codes and the um, categories and the meanings that people uh, produced and assigned to their behaviors and choices and life experiences. So for me, these three disciplines are kind of like different facets, different uh, faces of one and the same practice, which is the practice of storytelling and analyzing those stories that you are telling. Awesome. And I think that combination is uh, what makes your book unique. So, okay, so you did a master's program in um, Bolivia. And in the book, you tell us that that's when you started researching the topic of of this book, but you also tell us that this is a very personal book for you. And you alluded this a little bit in what you've said, but you mentioned in the introduction that this book is uh, your search for your own roots. So tell us more about this history, you know, what led you in particular to to study this topic and how, how you change, how your project changed from your years as as an MA student, to your years uh, doing a PhD in history? Yes, so when I was considering my options uh, for, for a topic, for a master thesis, uh, when I enrolled in this program, um, I knew that I wanted to work on Colombia, even though I was living in Bolivia, and what was happening in Bolivia was extremely interesting. I know that, you know, my country, um, it was, it's kind of like, it's, it's my passion in, in an obsession, I guess, uh, not only for me, I guess, for all Colombianists, uh, um, understanding Colombia, which is so puzzling in so many ways, becomes kind of like an obsession of a lifetime. Um, so thinking, okay, what are my options? I realized that in my own personal uh, history, I have kind of like the answer because my father and my father's family are from the Guajira, which was one of the epicenters of the marijuana boom of the 1970s. And I grew up listening to those stories of marijuana traffickers and the stories of the whole uh, Bonanza Marimbera, which is the popular term that people in Colombia used to talk about the marijuana boom of the 1970s. So because I was born and raised in Medellin, because my mother and my mother's family are Paisas from Medellin, I always felt that I wanted to explore more my other side uh, uh, of the family, you know, the Guajira side. And I found that this was kind of like a way to develop that strong connection uh, that I was craving for with the Guajira. And I began to do research and I realized there were not academic books about the Bonanza Marimbera, about the marijuana boom. There were uh, works of journalism. Mm, there was even a telenovela that it was very successful in the early 1980s. Uh, there were a lot of like essays and articles and things like that. But most of this lit- literature had been produced at the time of the boom, meaning in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And a lot of that literature was were fictionalized. There was no kind of like an academic book about what happened and why it happened. So I realized that that was an opportunity for me because the, the topic was interesting intellectually. It was relevant historically, and at the same time, it was compelling personally. So it wasn't that of a hard choice to make. In terms of how it changed from like that inception to, to what it is right now, uh, the book published by the University of California Press, well, in many ways, I mean, it, that was a work that took me more than a decade. So initially, I began working on kind of like the cultural history about the, the marijuana economy, uh, which in the book right now constitutes chapter four. So what is chapter four in the book? It was the initial approach I had, 
I had to this subject, which is about how this bonanza um, reappropriated and reactivated cultural codes of the contrabandista in the region. Because for those of you who are not familiar with Colombia, uh, the Guajira is that peninsula in the Colombian Caribbean coast that if you see a map, it's kind of like the, the tip of the country on the Caribbean coast and has been since the 18th century a paradise of smuggling and contraband precisely because of its uh, geographic location, but other social and cultural factors as well. So my initial approach was to understand how the Bonanza Marimbera was part of this long-term history of, of the contrabandista um, lifestyle and, and, and way of, of, of conducting business in, in the cultural region, right? And how the music in, uh, of the region, which is Vajenato music, and culture more generally, the regional culture and the regional folklore kind of like represented what happened, that uh, marijuana economy. And, and how served as a stage, as a social stage, a social arena for these traffickers to project, you know, their status and, and their achievements onto the social sphere, the public sphere. So that was my initial approach. But then I realized that I, I, I really wanted to do more than that, uh, that the book that I wanted to write was not just a cultural history and the the program in history at NYU helped me to find those other facets that I wanted to explore, you know, that had to do with the state and is also political history, diplomatic history with the United States and cultural analysis about memories and, you know, the problem of, of remembering and forgetting in, in Colombia. Um, so all those other aspects were added later on, but kind of like the seed, the initial approach was about culture and regional culture. Yeah, and we will get to some of those other aspects later on in the interview when we talk about some particular chapters. But uh, maybe for now we can discuss uh, the two images uh, with which you begin the, the, the book. Mm -hmm. and. Some of our listeners may be familiar with those images. You and I, as Colombians, are super familiar with them. Yes. So one of them is Juan Valdez. So a mestizo man with a thick mustache. Um, it's a fictional character who, during the 1960s and early 70s, promoted Colombian coffee to international market. On the other hand, you mentioned Paulo Escobar. And for those of our listeners that are not a Colombian, and when you meet a Colombian, please don't, please, the first thing you tell them, don't, don't say Pablo Escobar, it's very frustrating. So this was, this was a cocaine kingpin who in the 1980s and 1990s led a war against extradition to the U.S. There's a Netflix series about him. It's very, very uh, famous. So you tell us that both images represent the history of a country that transitioned from a coffee republic to a narcotics nation. But in the middle of such transition stands the forgotten history of the marijuana boom. So you said this already, like why did this first boom in illicit drugs felt into oblivion? Why wasn't there any like academic work about this before? Why, why do you think that is? So uh, obviously it's a very uh, complex question and answer. Uh, I'm just going to mention kind of like the most important aspects um, that I think uh, account for this forgetting of the marijuana boom. Uh, and by the way, uh, it's a partial forgetting because obviously in more recent years, this story have come up again uh, to the conversation. And there's actually a very famous movie that two years ago made it to the long list of the Oscar nominees for uh, Best Movie in Foreign Language uh, that is precisely about this history. So, But at the time I was doing this research, this kind of like revival of, of, of the memory of the marijuana and a boom uh, hadn't happened yet. And I began my book precisely with these two images of these uh, mestizo men with mustaches that have represented Colombia in the world stage. And the reason why I think the marijuana boom fell into oblivion for so long 
and only more recently is being talked about is because on the one hand, uh, the intensity with which the cocaine economy took over the country in the 1980s. So that created an urgency on the part of experts, scholars, intellectuals, etc., um, anybody who were trying to understand what was going on in order to find solutions to the problem, right? Uh, it created an urgency to focus exclusively on this. And those of us who were alive when this happened, we remember like it, it was such a fast times and every day was a new thing and we never had time to really make sense of what just happened because we need to cope with uh, something new, um, like a new um, development and a new tragedy. So I think the intensity with which the cocaine economy took over the country is one of the main factors for that neglectfulness and oblivion toward the marijuana boom of the 1970s. The other reason, um, I think, is the way in which kind of like academic disciplines uh, formed in Colombia. So by the time uh, the topic of uh, the drug business and drug trafficking became a legitimate topic of research and writing academically, uh, that happened in, in like during the 1980s, uh, but especially at the late of the 1980s and during the early 1990s. By that time, Still, like the main disciplines working on these topics were very kind of like quantitative and disciplines that were uh, intrinsically connected with the administration of the state. Uh, I'm talking about economists, political scientists. They were the ones who were like, really working on the topic of the drug trafficking and providing governments with recommendations on what to do and how to deal with this you know, how to understand this. And these scholars and intellectuals, they did great work in many ways. But at the same time, they had their limitations, just like we all do when we do uh, research. And what were the limitations uh, of them? Well, most of them at the time were mostly men, mostly white and mestizo men from the Indian interior of the country, uh, trying to understand how this cocaine economy had turned the Indian interior of the country upside down, right? And in many ways, they reproduce without really, um, I don't think it was kind of like a expressed effort on their part. It just happened that way. And the way in which the cocaine economy itself evolved, it just happened that way. Kind of like understanding central Colombia, which is the Colombian of the Indian interior, became the main task. So all these lowlands and peripheries and borderlands in the Caribbean coast or in the Amazonian region or in the Pacific coast kind of like took the backseat. And I'm not the only one talking about this. There are like great work on the part of anthropologists and sociologists and cultural critics talking about how Colombia is kind of like two Colombians, you know, like the central Colombian, which is mostly urban, uh, and then the the tropical lowlands peripheral Colombia. And one is superior to the other, or at least is is treated as being superior to the other. So I think that form of kind of like internal colonialism and how it manifested in the intellectual and academic arena is another factor for this oblivion. And finally, in the region itself, the former marijuana belt in the Caribbean coast, uh, scholars and intellectuals and researchers really had a very hard time addressing this topic. Many reasons. I'm just going to mention the most, the one that I consider the most important one, and that is that the state repression against the marijuana business was never successful in imposing the rule of law in the region. So impunity and violence ruled not only uh, over the business during the last stages, because it wasn't like that at the beginning, uh, but in the last stages, definitely impunity and violence was the rule, but also afterwards, once the business declined. So those who were curious and wanted to do research about this had their hands tied. And I know this because I interview many of them, and many of them emphasize that. That like for us at the moment, it was practically impossible to do research on this because many of the you know big shots 
of the business were still alive and very powerful. Uh, journalists that were working on this topic, they received death threats regularly. Judges, state agents, etc., they got killed uh, when they were trying to understand the ins and outs of the business. So for kind of like the what we call the local intelligentsia, it was very difficult to address this topic and it became an important topic of research and analysis and writing later on in the 2000s, way after the business had declined. So I think kind of like a, a combination of all these factors accounted for that oblivion or partial oblivion uh, around the Bonanza Marimbera and its consequences. Yeah, and here again, we see um, how useful it is that you have, you know, different disciplines from which you draw your knowledge and your your, your methodologies. Um, so I think now we can move to the to some of the arguments uh, the main interventions of of the book so you argued that the marijuana boom was a dramatic turning point in the history of colombia as the one that took place with coffee and that it was a critical component of hemispheric relations because it served as a training ground for the war on drugs in south america but scholars have explained the marijuana boom uh, by two main causes first because They said there was an absence of the state and uh, this was considered to be a peripheral region. And second, you say that scholars have also seen this as a result of the moral degeneration that U.S. consumers and smugglers brought with them in their search for new sources of marijuana. So tell us why you think these are not good enough explanatory reasons and why you see the Bonanza Marimbera as part of a history of nation-state formation rather than a, a part of, you know, a history of absence of state? And, and why is it also a, a, a part of an interstate relations, a history of the relations between different states in the Americas? Yes. When I started to familiarize myself with what has been written about this, uh, this story, I discovered, as you said, kind of like these two main explanations. One is that it happened in the Guajira and in the Sierra Nevada, because there are like borderlands and like frontier regions where the state has been absent. And it's precisely that absence of the state uh, what created the conditions for the emergence of illegal activities, right? Mm, around uh, smuggling and contraband. The other explanation that I found is that the blame uh, U.S. consumers, you know, U.S. Um, hippie marijuana smokers for the emergence and the consolidation of the marijuana connection between this part of the Colombian Caribbean and the United States, uh, because it is true, many of them arrived to the region in search for marijuana to supply themselves and their friends and to make some money in the process. But then I realized that, okay, There are many regions in Colombia where the state is absent and these U.S. hippies traveled the world and uh, stimulated marijuana and hashish connections in many parts of the world. You know, the Interpol reporter from different countries around the world in North Africa, in the Middle East, in Mediterranean Europe, in Western Europe, uh, in Mexico, of course, Uh, these American hippies creating these connections for the exportation of both marijuana and hashish. Uh, so I was like, okay, if this is happening in so many parts of the world, and if the Colombian state is absent in so many peripheral regions of the country, why the Guajira and the Sierra Nevada became the epicenter of this very profitable economy? So they were very unsatisfying explanations to me. So that's why I, I wasn't convinced that that was the best way to understand the emergence of the marijuana connection and the marijuana export economy. So in the process of research, uh, in not only conducting oral history, but also doing archival research, you know, the classical historian work in the archives uh, with governmental documents, but also in libraries and emerotecas, newspaper libraries, and etc., with the press and written evidences produced by all different kinds of people and, and agencies, etc. 
I realized that the, the marijuana boom is actually a moment of culmination of a long-term process of agrarian development and agrarian modernization. So it's kind of like the opposite of what has been said so far. This happened in this region, not because this region is, you know, backward and the state is absent, but it happened in this region precisely because since the early 20th century, this region, not the whole, the, the region as a whole, but certain sections within this region became laboratories of experimentation with different approaches to agrarian development and agrarian modernization. And here I'm talking, for example, of the Zona Bananera, the banana district, which is on the western, uh, on the foothills and the western watershed of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in this very same region by the United Fruit Company in the early 20th century. I'm also talking about the cotton economy, which developed in the Cesar River Valley, uh, which is another section of the same region in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. And I'm also talking about all these different booms of uh, smuggling of agricultural commodities uh, taking place from different natural ports in the Guajira Peninsula. Many times with agricultural commodities that were harvested in the Guajira Peninsula, such as the DVDV tree, which is a tree that produced um, uh, fruit that it was used to process uh, hides into leather. And it was very profitable before we developed all these different chemical processings to, to produce leather. So like tracing these previous agricultural economies and booms in the region, I realized that is not the absence of the state. It's actually the way in which the state understood as the central government, but also understood as the different institutions and the political parties, uh, the local elites and all the clientels attached to these uh, political parties, etc., the different agencies of development, the alliances with U.S. agencies of development and U.S. governments, the ones that created the conditions for this region to become a laboratory of agrarian modernization and the marijuana economy as a moment of culmination of that long-term process that took place since the early 20th century. So that's the part of about the history, the, this Bonanza Marimbera as part of the history of nation-state formation and about the other part of the argument, which is the Bonanza Marimbera about, as part of the uh, history of interstate relations is the Americas. It became evident to me at some point during the research that it was also possible this marijuana boom was possible precisely not just because the region was a laboratory of agrarian modernization, but also because the United States had a very consistent interest in this part of the Caribbean since very early. And it had gone through different facets and different phases, uh, but it has always been there. And it has to do with the proximity of this region with Venezuela and the oil district of Venezuela, right? Because it's just right there next door. And the, and the necessity that different U.S. governments have felt of having this part of the continental Caribbean under control, you know, from Panama to Venezuela, Panama with the canal, and Venezuela with the richest oil reserves in the hemisphere, and one of the biggest in the world. So Colombia as a sandwich, you know, kind of like sandwich between these two very important geopolitical interests and the Guajira as, as just right there in the middle of this became such an important site of um, not only experimentation with different models of agrarian development, but also with geopolitical interest. So the U.S. has been an actor in this history since the early 20th century, not just the governments, but also private investors and companies, corporate interest. And in that sense, this region has been a corner in which Colombia and the United States have negotiated and renegotiated uh, the relationships, the terms of the relationship 
in the Bonanza Marimbera, the marijuana boom, as a moment of heated renegotiations uh, of those relationships. Yeah, and to follow up on that, in addition of arguing that this is a product of a long-term process of agrarian modernization and nation-state formation and a deeper integration with U.S. markets, you also say that it was actually the eruption of the popular masses at the levels of production and commercialization that propelled the boom. So we have also these these actors, like these more ordinary people. So tell us why were they so important in this in this whole history? Yes, because we have all these different factors and conditions uh, that turn the region into this laboratory of experimentation with different approaches to agrarian modernization. But without the people, you know, the masses of anonymous people adopting and adapting these different tropical commodities for mass production, mass consumption, and many times for exportation to international markets, these economic booms were not possible. So as we mentioned before, one of the theories about the the marijuana boom so far has been that U.S. hippies arrived to the region and promoted uh, the initial marijuana connections for the exportation of the of the intoxicant. Uh, and yes, they play an absolutely central uh, role. Same way that urban elites and middle classes play a very important role as well in the promotion of those initial connections. Uh, one of the sources that I used uh, in my book is this doctoral dissertation in anthropology by a guy whose name is William Patrick, which I couldn't tracked and, and and I don't know if he's still alive if he's still working I couldn't he, he's not a professor anywhere so my only piece of information from him was his dissertation right so he wrote this dissertation uh, in 1972 after he conducted uh, months of fieldwork and ethnographic research in one of the many towns of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta during the takeoff of the marijuana boom right? And he's very clear and emphatic at affirming that urban elites and middle classes were the financiers of these crops initially, right? Because they have the contact, what it was called at the time, the connection, meaning the U.S. buyer for the product. Uh, They have the contact in the U.S. or in the Caribbean islands uh, oriented toward the U.S. and etc. But they have to rely on colonos, settlers in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, to cultivate the product. And one of the myths uh, that exist in Colombia is that the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta has produced marijuana forever. You know, kind of like the marijuana is endemic to the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. Well, I I, I have I haven't found any evidence that that is true. What we do know is that since the golden years of the Zona Bananera, of the banana district uh, controlled by the United Fruit Company in the early 20th century, marijuana was one of those cash crops that it was produced in the mountain range. But it was produced in a small scale for a very small local market, not for exportation. So it is in the late 1960s, at some point in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when these financiers, meaning the U.S. buyers with their allies in among urban elites and middle classes, financed new crops of marijuana for exportation. But it is the popular sectors, meaning the colonos, the settlers, the cultivators, that were willing and ready to adapt and adopt that new cash crop and replace coffee and other agricultural commodities that they cultivated with this cash crop for exportation is their willingness and availability what produces the boom. As the same way that it is the availability and the willingness of all these young men from different towns and villages in the region uh, ready to step in to do the intermediation between the cultivators in the mountain range and the exporters in the cities or in the ports. Without them, the commodity could not circulate from you know, the cultivation areas in the mountain range to the exportation outlets 
in the lowlands along the coast, either uh, through airplanes in landing fields or through maritime ports when it was exported through maritime exportation. So the boom really happens when these masses of cultivators, intermediaries, step in and make this economy possible. And why there were so many willing and ready to do this, precisely because the region had gone through different phases of agrarian modernization, producing a demographic boom, right? And at the same time, creating you know, like a demographic explosion and at the same time not offering enough opportunities of employment or businesses or capital accumulation to those masses that were growing in numbers. So the marijuana becomes the commodity that offers to these masses that only kept growing uh, the opportunity, the chance to realize those promises of capital accumulation, of urbanization, employment, etc., that were not possible through legal channels in legal economic sectors. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is the perfect uh, moment in which we can move on to the chapters. And I think you've given us enough uh, about context. So just to flag it to, to our listeners, your book is divided in three sections each with two chapters, and they move chronologically. So the first section is titled Ascendance. And here you deal with the period of the mid-1960s to 1972, and you explain this longer history of the region and the beginning of the of the marijuana business. But I would like us to move to section two, which is like kind of the heart also of your project, which is titled Peak, in which you analyze the bountiful years between 1972 and 1978. And you've kind of mentioned already like the importance of these ordinary people and why they were the one that pushed the booms. But here I think we can talk about gender because this is also one of the interventions of, of, of your book. Um, so in chapter four, which you mentioned and which is titled Party Animals, you talk about the rise of marimberos and the critical role that masculinity played in the business. So you talk a lot about vallenato and parrandas. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this more, more you know, cultural history side of that you kind of already mentioned also at the beginning of the interview. So how is it that being a male trafficker could be a vehicle for masculine reconstitution? Yes. So as I said before, kind of like that was the seed of my project, the first approach I had to the topic. Uh, but before I, I dive into that aspect, I just want to say something that is relevant for, for this about part one, Ascendance, um, which is, uh, as you said, each part is comprised by two chapters. So Ascendance is chapter one and two. And the part that I want to mention is that in that part where I trace these previous agrarian economies, banana, cotton, DVDV, etc., I also trace how agricultural commodities uh, became a profitable commodity to smuggle out of the country, to export. And that actually began with coffee, not with marijuana. In the 1950s and 1960s, coffee became such a profitable commodity for the contraband uh, cliques and networks, not only in the Guajira, but throughout the whole country. And that has to do with new macroeconomic policies that I'm not going to explain uh, because it will be too complicated and will be a long detour. But the point is that it is the smuggling of coffee during the 50s and 60s what kind of like completes the picture that made possible the exportation of another agricultural commodity that is marijuana. So then I come to part two, which is the peak. Uh, which is, again, two chapters, three and four. In chapter three, I explain and analyze the ins and outs of the, of the marijuana sector. You know, basically, it's a work of political economy about who did what and when, who cultivated, how they did it, who commercialized it, how they did it, etc. And then I, go, I move to chapter four, which is the cultural history of that same um, political economy. And it's entitled Party Animals. Uh, in Spanish, will be Parranderos. 
because it talks about how as part of the process of constitution of the new agrarian entrepreneurial class of marijuana traffickers, right? That's what we call marimberos because uh, in the popular argot, uh, the marijuana boon was called bonanza marimbera. So the marijuana traffickers were called marimberos. And in that chapter four, I explain how as part of the process of constitution of them as a new agrarian entrepreneurial class, culture and music became an arena of social and cultural negotiation where they projected an idealized image of themselves as men of stature, as successful merchants, as important people, right? So what I discover uh, is that, um, and I did this by listening and reading and listening um, and transcribing Vagenato music lyrics. Uh, Vagenato is the music of the region, which is played with accordion. And it was initially like a rural music uh, that emerged out of the, the cattle ranching and the people who pasture their herds and since the 19th century. So by the time of the 20th century, Vagenato was very well known throughout the country because it had been recorded and there have been very successful bands playing this music. So what I discovered is that these marijuana traffickers, these marimberos, uh, seized vallenato uh, in the parranda, which is the specific type of party and celebration around vallenato music as their own arena for social projection, precisely because they were following the example of another sector of the uh, agrarian entrepreneurial class in the region. And they were the cotton growers. So the cotton growers were a very successful group of cattle ranchers that in the 1950s and 1960s, with the support and finance of the national, of national governments and U.S. agencies of development, managed to make a transition between cattle ranching and cotton growing because the country really needed a national cotton production for the textile industry at a time when import substitution industrialization was the model to follow. So these cattle ranchers found themselves at the center of this very important economic national transition and becoming the protagonist of that new economy, right, for the industrialization of the country. And during those decades, when they were such an important economic protagonist in the country, they also used vallenato music and the vallenato parranda, the, the party, as their arena for social projection. So all those Vallenato songs that we now celebrate as kind of like part of the folkloric repertoire of the nation, what we call Los Clásicos, you know, Los Clásicos de la Provincia, the classic songs of Vallenato from the 50s and 60s are actually the product of this process of accommodation of cattle ranchers transitioning into cotton growers and becoming protagonists of the national economy and the industrialization of the country. So Vallenato was their, their stay in the Paranda, was the stage where they project, you know, like, like the region as a paradise of mestizaje and harmony, uh, where this part of the country was the place where Colombia found something authentic and truth about itself. And through vallenato music and through parandas, they cultivated personal relationships with very powerful people in Bogota. And not only, this is not only my work, a lot of people have written about this as well how like many of these uh, cattle ranchers who became cotton growers and who were also congressmen, because most of them were men, cultivated these personal relationships with like the political uh, elites in Bogota and with the people who were in control of the political parties and of the national governments and the state apparatus. And they travel regularly 
to Valledupar, which is the main city of the cotton region at the time, um, to party with them with Vallenato music, and their names were named in Vallenato songs. So the marimberos, the marijuana traffickers, were just following uh, the example that this older and more powerful uh, generation of agrarian entrepreneurs uh, had set in the region decades before them. And they did so in a very natural and organic way because most of these marijuana traffickers were men from the countryside or from small villages and towns. And the Vallenato music and the regional folklore was also their heritage and was also was their music. So for them, it was what I'm saying is uh, it's not planned. It's not a strategy, a conscious strategy necessarily. It's just something very natural and organic that happened because the the, the young men who were making money with marijuana uh, were part of the same generation and the same social class of the young men that were making a name in Vallenato music. So the channels and the dialogues between one and the other just happened in a very natural and organic way. Uh, but they were definitely following the example of this older and more powerful generation of agrarian entrepreneurs and making Vallenato and the Paranda uh, a place where they could like weave together a very tight social fabric of interpersonal relationships uh, for business, but also for life and family. Yeah, and I love how your book invites us, readers, listeners, to go and check out Vallenato music or the, the movie you mentioned, Birds of Passage. So this your your book also invites us to go and visit this other, you know, these different types of of representations of the region you're you're talking. So Maybe our listeners, after hearing this, will will go and check out some Vallenato music. I hope so, because uh, there are, uh, in my book, I only mention a few songs, many a dozen or, or, or 20 of them or something like that. But there are many more where you can hear in the lyrics and in shout outs in the middle of, of, of songs, recognition to like these guys who were making a name for themselves, uh, exporting or, or commercializing marijuana. Obviously, you need to be kind of like an expert listener and in this sense, oral history and interviews helped me a lot in my own family, kind of like decoding that because it's not evident that that's what's going on. But in the songs themselves, there's evidence and proof of, of that celebration of that new generation of successful agrarian entrepreneurs. And, you know, there are shout outs to their names. Uh, many songs are inspired in their life experiences or their personalities. So it's really interesting to see how the music reflects the image, the idealized image that they have. Not only the marijuana traffickers themselves and the vaginato artists that were their friends and relatives and neighbors and celebrate and celebrated those traffickers, but also um, society at large, more generally, that love those songs and, and having those songs a very uh, sincere and honest and authentic expression of their uh, collective spirit and collective soul. Um, there's something very beautiful that has happened to me a couple of times when I've been in, in, in the Guajira or in the or in Santa Marta and Valledupar area sharing my work that I played some of these songs uh, during my talks. And a lot of people just stand up and start like singing and dancing in the middle of the talk or the conference because it's, it's something that like really uh, touches uh, their spirit. And I don't need to tell them what those songs are about because they know very well they were actually the ones who told me what those songs were about, right? Uh, but now that I'm offering them my own analysis and interpretation about that, uh, we establish a very nice dialogue between their view of, of that moment and my own view. And in Vallenato, we meet and we find uh, each other and kind of like, um, I don't know, kind of like appreciate the depth 
of that story. Awesome. So listeners, go ahead and go listen to Vallenato music because this is also a way to learn about history and this is super instructive. Okay, so now we can move to the final section, which is section three and it's titled Decline. So this section covers the violent years between 1978 and 1980s uh, when producers, intermediaries, exporters and buyers became targets of criminalization. So tell us a little bit about this period. So why did it occur? What were some of the tropes about violence and terror that emerged as a color of criminalization and militarization? Uh, what were some of the stereotypes that also emerged uh, about the people and territories uh, that you study? Uh, tell us a little bit about this period of decline. Yes, so again, the last part uh, is also comprised by two chapters, five and six. In chapter five, I do a diplomatic history of uh, Colombian-U.S. relations and how the different administrations uh, in the 1970s on the U.S. side, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, and on the Colombian side, Pastrana, Lopez Mikkelsen, and Turbay, how they engage in all these processes of diplomacy and negotiation to figure out what was the best way to respond to the growing traffic in marijuana and also cocaine between the two countries. So that's chapter five. And then in chapter six, what I do is to analyze on the ground how that campaign of crops eradication and traffic interdiction that U.S. and Colombian governments launched uh, in the Guajira and the Sierra Nevada beginning in November 1978 until March 1980, how that campaign looked on the ground and what were the consequences and the effects on, on the networks of marijuana cultivation and distribution. And that's when I analyze all these tropes about violence that were the corollary to militarization and criminalization. And my main point is that the business became really violent as a result of criminalization and militarization on the part of the state. And with this, I'm not saying that the region was a peaceful region. It was not. Since very early in the 20th century, we have seen different cycles of like violence uh, and social and political turmoil. Uh, the very famous massacre of the banana fields, the Masacre de las Bananeras from 1928, is obviously one of those episodes, but not the only one. So there was a lot of violence in this region at different levels. But the marijuana business itself was very, was relatively peaceful for many years until the state intervened, the Colombian state in association with the United States, intervened by criminalizing all these activities and militarizing the region. And that exacerbated the tensions and conflicts that already existed on the ground and unleashed a dynamic, a kind of like a spiral of violence uh, at all levels in the cultivation areas, in the countryside, in the mountain range, in the Sierra Nevada, but also in the urban world, including Barranquilla, who is the main uh, metropolis, the main city in the region. So in this part, again, kind of like arguing against the grain of the consensus, as I am doing it at the beginning to explain the emergence when I'm saying, no, it's not the absence of the state and it's not the U.S. hippies, the main factor here, although obviously that's a factor, but it's not the main one. Similarly, I'm doing it in the last part of the decline, saying it's not the business the illegal drugs business that is violent per se, right? And I'm not the only one saying this. There are many other scholars saying something very different for other countries, uh, Mexico especially, saying that the drug business is not violent per se, that we need to go beyond that to understand the dynamic between state and traffickers because it is in the dynamic between the two that violence is unleashed and the dynamic between traffickers among themselves as well, right? Uh, so that's what I do in the last part and trying to understand how um, that violence, that spiral of violence was unleashed after criminalization and militarization, but at the same time trying to understand how it was represented in the public sphere, 
especially the media and the press, which played a very important role at this time explaining to the rest of the country what was happening in the Caribbean coast. Uh, so I do kind of like discourse analysis to understand those tropes and those forms of representation of what was happening in the region at this time and how marimberos, marijuana traffickers, but the region as a whole, the people in the region as a whole, were represented as intrinsically violent instead of explaining the violence as a conjunctural moment uh, that was the outcome of a very specific dynamic. The representations in the public sphere, especially in the media, were about, yes, because the guajiros are violent by nature because they are used to the desert, um, you know, in, in like these permanent bonanzas uh, where... Uh, is the law of the jungle, right? Well, the law of the desert in this case, uh, with only the fittest and the strongest survive. And I'm like um, analyzing those representations and those tropes to understand how Colombia's internal colonialism that is expressed in racial terms and regional terms is expressed in these representations about the decline of the Bonanza Marimbera and how those representations have prevented us at the time from understanding better and also from understanding what was the role of the state in that dynamic because the state got obliterated from the conversation. So criminalization and militarization became kind of like a self-evident solutions when there were many others on the table before they became the final solution. Uh, but that was not part of the conversation. Um, so trying to understand um, how um, those discourse about violence uh, created incredible limits to our understanding of what happened and in a way defined the conversation for decades to come because we see something very similar happening uh, when it was time for us to understand what was happening with the cocaine cartels, right? So I really see that moment as an inaugural moment in which Colombia became one of the main theaters of the war on drugs in the Americas and the role that the media played in that new uh, development. Yeah, so I, I think you're hinting out to this, but maybe you can tell our listeners, and I usually like to end our, uh, the interviews in, with this type of question. So why do you think it's important to learn about this history today, not only in Colombia, but also in the U.S. and other regions of the Americas? Well, if you if you look at the world uh, right now, and, and, and not only just right now, 2020, but in the last, I don't know, 40 years or so, like the last decades of the 20th century and the first decades of the of the 21st century, we see many parts of the world, but let's focus on, on the Americas only, many regions in the Americas that have become like epicenters of all kinds of illegal activities and illegal economies, right? And a lot of people have analyzed that as, as kind of like an outcome and consequence of, of the neoliberal turn that made informal economies the rule rather, rather than the exception. And yes, definitely that's the case. But um, what I'm saying here is that drug history has something to contribute to that analysis and to that understanding of that neoliberal term. Because it is in, drug, in, in, in these drug economies, illegal drug economies, that we see many of these patterns emerging and consolidating and becoming the rule. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's important in kind of like hemispheric terms to understand how regions that we consider peripheries that lived off illegal economies of all kinds, not just drugs, have become this, why that reality has settled in and has become the rule in many countries and in many regions of the hemisphere. And in the, in the case of Colombia, it is important because the transition between the Colombia we used to be, you know, the coffee republic, uh, one of the main producers of coffee in the world, with what used to be called the most stable representative democracy in the hemisphere because we have elections every four years and we have a very stable uh, two-party system 
and etc. Um, how that Colombia, that coffee republic, became one of the largest drug producers in the planet. Um, how can we explain that radical transformation and that transition from one to the other as we began the conversation and as I began my book, opened my book, how the Colombia of Juan Valdez became the Colombia of Paulo Escobar. And I truly believe the Bonanza Marimbera, this marijuana boom, is kind of like the turning point between one and the other. Because it is precisely there when we see how these patterns of agrarian development produce their unintended and undesired consequences. And how the limits of those models of development come to fruition and nos pasa factura, as we said in, in Spanish uh, and in Colombia. So this is kind of like a moment, like a turning point, like uh, uh, the moment when when one thing became the other. And as you know, we historians, we are very concerned of understanding historical change. And this is a major historical change when the coffee republic becomes a narcotics nation and is the marijuana boom, the moment when that turned, kind of like happened and consolidates. Um, so that's why I think it's important to understand this uh, story because of the lessons that it has to understand development, modernization, and to understand illegal economies in the Americas more generally. Oh, and obviously, um, which um, you asked me in your question as well, to understand how that is also part of the history of the relationships in this particular case between Colombia and the United States and how we become suppliers of these uh, ever-growing market, drug market in the United States. And it's with the marijuana boom that that happens. Uh, now with cocaine, it's with marijuana. And precisely because marijuana is an agricultural commodity with no value added. So in that sense, it's very appropriate for uh, productive uh, traditions of producing agricultural commodities for exportation without value added. So that's why I think it's important to understand this history because it really condenses patterns of a previous moment and consolidates them uh, to come to fruition later on uh, in the following decades. Okay, great. So Before we finish up, tell us what you're working on right now. What are your current projects? So right now I'm kind of like working on several things. Um, on the one hand, I'm doing like something very small. It's just an essay about those U.S. hippies that uh, stimulated the connection, the Colombian-U.S. marijuana connection. And it's an essay that is entitled Flying High. And the subtitle is A Collective Biography of the American Pilots of the Colombian Drug Booms. And I'm trying to understand how these young men, many of them who were veterans of the Vietnam War, became traffickers of marijuana uh, from being consumers, how they became exporters as well, and how their special training uh, as pilots allowed them to have the specific knowledge they needed for these kinds of activities. And what that says about that generation here in the United States and the role that that generation played in creating new channels of communication between Colombia and the United States. So that's one thing that I'm working on, but it's just an essay and I hopefully had it ready by the summer. Um, then I have another project with actually several colleagues for two uh, edited volumes on uh, histories of Colombia. And it's a very interdisciplinary project, colleagues from different disciplines that are professors both in Colombia and here in the United States in anthropology, history, sociology, political science, film studies, cultural studies, etc., are putting together this volume uh, of essays about Colombia in the 19th and 20th century. So I'm very excited about that because it's really going to touch upon different topics and different themes from uh, the formation of the republic, from uh, liberal export booms to histories of modernization and development, issues of memory and reconciliation right now, uh, 
uh, illegal economies, extractivism. So it's, it's, it's very exciting because uh, at least two dozen of us are coming together for this project. Uh, and it's going to be published here in English by Rutledge, and we're working on it. And that's another of the projects I have. And for a second book project, I'm just beginning to explore an idea that I had also for a long, long time. And it's very similar to this book in many ways. So this book is kind of like a homage to my father and my father's uh, family and that part of my personal history, you know, like my origins in the Guajira and, and the region where that side of my family comes from. So my second book project, I want to do the other side, my mother and my mother's family side. Uh, and it's going to be a history of, of medicine and public health uh, in Medellin and Antioquia. And I'm just kind of like working on the project itself, exploring archives and, and conducting preliminary oral history and figuring it out, how am I going to do it? Uh, but I'm very excited about that project because the, the, the two books are going to be kind of like a duology on my two sides of the family and in the country of my childhood, the 70s and 80s. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to both of those projects and because I specialize in history of medicine and science. I'm particularly intrigued by that se by that third project. So, Lina, thank you so much for taking our time to talk to me in this very difficult period. We send to our listeners a lot of, you know, good vibes and hopefully this interview will will help them out a little bit in this in this moment of social distancing. Thank, so thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. That's this been fun and I hope it's going to be interesting and, and useful to our listeners and thanks to our listeners for tuning in thank you